All right, this is John Krasinski sounding off on Soccer Podcast. Uh, we've had some really good guests on uh, late, but uh, really with me right now, Devin Kerr. Um, not to be confused with Kevin Kerr or Devin Kerr, uh, any other famous soccer names. Devin, uh, just thanks for joining me. I really appreciate you being on, with me on this format. John, thanks for having me on, buddy. Uh, you know, you started off so well. You've had good guests, and then you segued to me. Why'd you bring me on, man? I, I'm ruining it for everybody, right? No, we got, I mean, honestly, like, I, I saw you were in Pittsburgh this week, and I was like, I had to yep. take advantage of this. The man is, uh, has been really been, uh, you wear many hats in terms of the analyst role. Uh, just yeah. take a look at your resume. I, I wouldn't even know where to start, um, but you know, you've been on ESPN Plus and the, obviously all the USL lead analysts, um, the ACC network. So when it was a big ACC uh, matchup uh, or ACC team and playing uh, Pitt uh, hosting uh, West Virginia this week, you were here, you were in Pittsburgh. So uh, maybe let's start there. Um, because I'd love to pick your brain about all the USL and Riverhounds too. But let's start there. That's where the, all the excitement was this this past Monday here. Ambrose Urbanic Field, what an atmosphere. Uh, it, was, it was Pitt Panthers really, I think, wanted to make an early statement this season by playing some tough teams and getting some wins, where last year they didn't do that. What was your impression of the Pitt Panthers? Oh, I would say that you hit most of it right out of the park right there, that they wanted to make an impression. Um, when I look at Pitt and what Vidovich has done there, everybody talks about the numbers, and, and I'm with all that, right? Like, he comes in first year to win season, and they make it to 500, and then all of a sudden they're in the College Cup, and, and now they're a perennial powerhouse, not just in the ACC, but at the national level. This team's aspirations have gone from being relevant to being at the top, right? They want to be at the top of every single heap, and they want a star above their crest. It's that simple done it so far in the sense of what the perception is in the public eye this team is great all over the board and i had some concerns coming in because of and and where that was going to be on the field so you take a guy like Campuzano in goal and and what a mainstay he was for them so for such a long period of time producing jaw-dropping saves penalty saves his organization on the back line and he's gone Vandersar steps in even with the pedigree at the goalkeeping level, his father, Edwin, and, and, you know, Ajax and his background, I don't care who you are. It does take a special individual to have never played in that environment to step in and then be successful. And he's done that. So you beat Georgetown, you beat West Virginia quite convincingly in the second game. And then the back line. The back line was probably my bigger concern because you can shield a goalkeeper, right? But, but all the defenders, that's more of a cohesive unit. And so what was it going to look like? Vidovich said to me when I sat in his office the day before the game, he didn't know who his right back was going to be. You bring in Lucas Rosa. Like, that's a transfer who was an attacking midfielder. Right. St. Francis, but an All-American, right? Right. And what what are we going to do with him? How do you take a player, mind you, injury-ridden last year. That's why he didn't play. But how do you take a player that's an All-American that's always been the guy and get him on the field when you've got a pretty good midfield and you've got good depth there? Turns out he's a pretty good right back. And he can play yeah. left back too. And a six, like he was just all over the place. So I guess where I'm going with is, you know, someone else asked me when I left, my mother asked me this. And then I had a fan who was at the game ask me this, is Pitt that good? Or is did West Virginia play that poor? No, Pitt's that good. Pitt is that good. Because for me, John, it always comes down to the eye test. 
and not just with the opponent, but what the big picture looks like. Pitt is very, very good. Their rotation has gotten even better tactically the way that they come off of the back line, the inverting outside backs. They've still got all of the attacking prowess going forward. Valentino well, Bertrand Jacques what he's capable of. Sam Cowles proved that he's good in the holdup play. If they don't make the College Cup, I would be surprised. Now, there is a long way to go within that equation, but that's the type of talent that we're talking about for Vidovich and the Panthers. They are right at the top, and if they can stay consistent and just keep tweaking themselves, getting a little better every single game, they will have every opportunity to win a national title this season. Yeah, what do you think is so unique about the way they play in their system? It seems like that that real narrow 4-2-2-2, but then they get those guys out wide, um, whether it's Jockison. I think Jockison, the first few games, has just been on a different level. I think he went to MLS Combine, came back, and he just seems like a man on a mission. So he's a little bit underrated, definitely has a chip on his shoulder. I would start with the international side of things and the influence that Vidovich has brought to the roster with so many different countries being represented. Eight, I believe, is the current count on the team. The number used to be a little bit higher, if not for the players getting their opportunity at the pro level. And so international players tactically are always more advanced. And that's just because the game starts younger with them, so it progresses faster. Now, that trend is being kicked a little bit in the United States, but we're always football, basketball, baseball, you know, hockey, let's sprinkle in soccer. That argument depends on what area of the country that you're in, how pre- prevalent soccer is. In Europe, it's football, and it's only football, right? So they understand the game at a higher level, faster and younger. And so when they come over, they're usually more tactically oriented. So he can he can mess around with those formations and tweak things quicker. I would say that when you start with a base for something, you're always going to be able to make things better down the line. Now, usually the simplest example I give of that is something like a skyscraper or a condominium building. When you start, all you care about is having a good foundation to make sure that that building is not going to fall down. You want to make sure that the base is good, the structure is good, that you pour a good bottom layer, and then you you get your pilings, everything's going up, and you just want to make sure that structurally you're sound. A college program and a team is the exact same way. Get some good players in, guys that are consistent, help you build to the next level. What's at the next level? Okay, you got your lobby, maybe some stores. Then you have the lower tiered apartments or buildings where everybody's kind of working their way in, real estate, that kind of stuff. What I'm getting at is, is the top tier is your penthouse apartments. They're bigger. They're flashier. That's what Jacqueson is. That's what Valentin Noel is. That's what this program was missing when Jay Vidovich took over a couple of years ago. I believe first year was what, 16, 17 now? Um so anyway, as he's come in, he's starting. He's had the ability to start to influence the game in different manners. So if you just take the last three seasons, College Cup, Elite Eight, till now, even though it's a small sample size, you mentioned the 2-2-2. That started in a very traditional 4-3-3. One holding six, Jackson Walty, two in front, three up top, and then you run with it, right? It's transitional, it's fun. Well, then you got guys like Jasper Lofelsen, who not only was he good in transition, he could play a little bit on the inside, right? And he was very attack-minded. So now you get an over-rotation on the back line that sits with three. To now, all of a sudden, in the modern day that we're talking right now, you have two outside backs that get involved in the midfield. You've got two attacking midfielders, one of which that will drop underneath and help out in a 6-8 role, another which that will press on the front line and become a forward. And the next thing you know, you've got two center backs, a goalkeeper, and eight other guys having That's plenty right. of fun down the field, That's right? Exactly and so it's, it's right. fun. Like, he has taken... And this is what this game is all about. He has taken a European influence, stamped it into 
the American collegiate style, and he's made it flashy and fun. Kids want to go and play for him, and that's what this should be about because whether you're 18 years old or 23 years old wanting to get a degree, he finds a way to blend all of that together, and the student section's great, and everybody has a blast, and that's what this is all about. Yeah, you know, it's funny you say that because I was watching Arturo Ordonez the last few years and even Bryce Washington, who's now with Atlanta United, too. Yep. These are guys that were they were left on a lot of islands for the, for the Panthers. And sometimes it, it, it cost them here and there. But I mean, as far as making them, I mean, they were already great in terms of individually one on one defending but um, and handling those situations. But I, I think that that's something that Bob Lilly, I know I don't want to transition too far ahead to Riverhounds yet, but that's something Bob Lilly, um, I think, told me on the side that, that he really liked about Ordonez in particular, that his ability to just to handle those situations. But Jay, Jay, you, you mentioned going into this early part of the season, completely rebuild on the back line. I mean, and, and different type of players. I mean, yeah, Lucas Rosa, is definitely has an attack mindset uh, at outside back, um, but going with a very young a freshman uh, at left back as well. Yep. Who, yep. You know, has some Philadelphia U- Union um, background and played for Union too. So, I mean, he's just finding all the right pieces, isn't he? Yeah, and I would say that to that specific piece, th- this is one of the great things about Jay Vidovich. We mentioned Lucas Rosen outside back, six, eight, ten. You can really play him anywhere in the midfield, and he's done it in the first two right. games. Gilman is another piece of that where it's easy to look in theory and say, okay, he's a defender. You know, you drop him next to Enrique Galina and Yanis Learman, two veterans, right? You're talking about grad student transfers who has already played four years, USF and UCF respectively. So it's a freshman. Oh, no. But Jackson Gilman isn't just a freshman. He's from the YSC Academy. That carries a different praise and moniker around it with all due respect to some of the other programs around the country. Now that could be previous DA stops to now what we have is MLS next pro MLS next. And of course, ECNL Jackson Gilman isn't actually an outside left back. Jackson Gilman is a right-sided center back who then plays left-sided center back. It just so happens that he's also good enough to play left back and a six and Pitt is covered everywhere else. So they didn't need, a right-sided center back or a left-sided center back. That's why you brought those two grad students in. They didn't need a six, certainly, because they've got plenty of depth there. He just happens to be comfortable in playing it. So, again, back to my point, you're taking a freshman who's a central defender that you move to the outside, who now, with the way that Vidovich wants to play, yeah, you can bring Rosen, pump them both up in and bring them in, because guess what? They're both midfielders by trade at the youth levels. They're just comfortable doing it at the collegiate level. So he kind of tweaks every little piece that comes in, because traditionally in, in the collegiate level is, well, that's a striker and I've got an outside midfielder. That's a center back. But Vidovich goes, no, I got a, that's a nine. I mean, look at Valentino. Noel. plays the nine, the seven, the 11, played him in the 10, all four of those positions against West Virginia. He just takes every single player, makes them better at their own position, but also finds ways to have an influence on their game outside of that natural spot that they're so used to. Yeah, and they noticed that Val Noel, too, played a little bit wide, and then he brought him back in in the Georgetown game. Um, the pick game, he was mixing things up, too, but Almeida and um, trying to think who else. Have to, um, uh, the other, uh, I think he's a sophomore now. Um, we had Sam, Louis, Louis Semcal. Semcal. Louis Semcal, and, yeah. And so these are newer play, you know, to the I – mean, Almeida got some time last year. So, so yeah, they're deep. It's interesting, too – is they brought on a local uh, Pittsburgh area uh, player um, transfer, another t- graduate transfer, 
graduate transfer, um, Josh Lucchini, who was a Patriot League Offensive Player of the Year, and he's in his fifth year too. And, and it's going to be interesting to see if and how they use Josh in in the mix at the top two. A lot of people around here know Josh pretty well, but um, it was interesting to, to add him to the mix too. Yeah, I like him. I, the key issue for Josh is going to be his health. He, it didn't start off very well for him. He hurt his ankle. And without going into details, you know, a couple other guys, Fetosa is another one, Lucini you talked about, Michael Sullivan, they all picked up these injuries where right. you know, they just haven't had the best of camps so far. And And what ends up happening is a couple of things. Number one, the team itself is going to evolve. What you see now, and these aren't just my words. This is coming out of the mouth of Jay Vidovich, too. The team that you see now, it's probably going to be different in six weeks, and it's going to be very different in 10 weeks. Now, you can judge that by games and fixtures, or you can judge that by actual week to week. Within that, players start to distance themselves. Usually within that time frame, a couple of things happen. Players find good form. They get better fitness. They get comfortable with their teammates. The head coach is then going to find a standard, probably seven or eight, that are like penned into the lineup. You know, barring any any unforeseen things of, you know, a catastrophic injury or, uh, you know, family affair or whatever it may be. So then all of a sudden now you've got to break through in that. And so you're already starting on the weak side of things because you've had an injury and you're trying to fight back. Certainly doesn't bode well that Sam Cow has been a good holdup player in the first two games and that Jackson and Noel are going to be who they are, right? Like it's in their DNA to succeed. Those guys have 35 goals between the two of them. French connection uh, in the last three years. It's awesome. All right. French connection. I, I interviewed Jackie son after the game and I said, just tell me what's so special. And he said, usually when I'm on the ball, Valentino Noel knows I'm going to find him now. Doesn't always know where doesn't always know when, but he's a player who has always kept his head up and he finds a way to connect with me. He's like, it's, it's a special relationship that we have. And so when, when those two are playing well, and then the guy, you know, in, and Sam Cal, who's at least started the season, and the holdup position is playing well, you know, that doesn't bode well. I will say, though, that overall, the talent level for Lucini, he's going to get an opportunity. It's just when and where. If they keep playing that way, too, you start putting teams of top caliber, especially away, 2-3-0 early on in games, Vidovich is going to rotate more. He's going to keep guys fresh because this is a very long season. As we all know, the 21st century model is not in place yet, so we have such a finite window to compact these young men into You've got to find a way to keep their body fresh and healthy, and that only comes through rotation of players. Yeah, you brought up the 21st century model, and Jay is one of the leading proponents of that, and uh, Jay Vidovich, that is, a pit, uh, playing the uh, year-round or at least spring, uh, fall and spring semester um, schedules. Uh, there's been some talk. I mean, what do you think is the realistic um, outcome here? Is it going to happen? What do you think? I do think it's going to happen. Um Given, you know, you, you talked about Vidovich, the lead in that group, and obviously Vidovich is a massive name and he deserves the recognition too. The guy who's spearheaded everything um, is Sasha Sarovsky from Maryland. And he's been the one out in front leading this line for such a long period of time. It's important to me for people to understand that you would think that in a current system where these guys have had so, so much success, they wouldn't want to change it, right? Like, why would you change something that's working right because they're finding success. It's because they're unselfish in nature and they're trying to grow the game. Now, I know there was some brushback from some of the students at Notre Dame, and I respect their opinions, absolutely. That's what this is about. It's an open discussion to find a way to make it benefit all. 
But if you really take a step back from the game and you want it to benefit all, I have a hard time believing that college students want to push their lives into a smaller window, doing homework on a bus, riding back from games with no sleep and all of that stuff, when you can actually experience more of what professional life would be like. And I mean that in every sense of the word. I'm not just talking about playing. I'm talking about the actual professional world. Like, think about it now. In in what we're dealing with right now, pitches played against Georgetown and against West Virginia. Now, school's starting. Other games are going to come about. The next thing you know, you're playing three games in six days, three games in seven days, four games in ten days. The body is not made to be able to handle that kind of workload physically for the sporting side of things. Now, take that individual, put them on a bus, put them on a plane, in a hotel room, changing time zones, finding a way to be away from their learning environment. It's difficult any which way that you look at it. If you give them more of an opportunity to focus, excuse me, on what's right in front of them, makes perfect sense. If I took you away from your job and said, here's the deal, you can't talk to your coworkers as much, you can't have as much ability to read into the content that you're trying to work on. You can't interview anybody. You can't do this. You can't do that. Basically restricting you from a good 50% plus of what you should be involved in. Anybody's professional job is going to suffer. And make no mistake about it. This level, there is a level of professionalism. Like People are now making decisions based on finances. I know a player right now in the ACC, I, 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 just because of confidentiality, I'm not going to say his name or who it was, but I had a discussion with him and his father. He chose the college route because professionally, if you were given X amount of dollars, does that equate to a full scholarship at a top ACC school over the course of four years? No, it doesn't because you have to, you have to compete. You have to make sure that you're bringing out the quality results. So anyway, as you bring it all together, this just gives everybody a great opportunity to experience the college lifestyle. You can continue to play, and you can continue to actually learn at every level of the game. It's also going to make sure that on the health side, we're not hurting these players in the long run because so much of these guys tactically are not when they go pro. And then the physical side of it, they're beat up, they're getting hurt way too early on, and their careers aren't as long once they step into the professional game. Yeah, I think those are great points all around. And I think there's a lot of momentum building. It just seems like the NCAA is just dragging its feet in terms of making decisions and that sort of thing. And, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But um, all right. Sorry about that. Your screen went a little blurry there, but we uh, we see you now. Uh, Devin, uh, you know, great insights on the uh, the um, you know potential for the 21st century model and, and when it's going to happen. Yeah. Like, I've talked to a lot of people about it, but I haven't really, really heard a, a, what's the reality? What's the timetable? Can it really happen? So I appreciate yeah. your insights. Uh, but let's segue over into the Pittsburgh Riverhounds and USL Championship, because that's really uh, where we've been introduced to you here in Pittsburgh. Um, yep. the, the the Riverhounds, uh, you know, that's that's right now they're in fifth place behind Birmingham. Uh, they've got time to to kind of right the ship. They're 14, I believe, 14, 7, and 6 if you go win, loss, draw. Um, last night is nil-nil draw against Charleston. Just They just couldn't put it back in the net. I think about 16 shots. They had a 16-3 to three advantage, only three on frame, two uh, for Charleston on frame. And they really needed Arturo Adornia's save on the line and then also – oh, yeah. One um, Jamali weight, weight uh, save two, which 
I thought those two chances for Charleston might have been more dangerous than anything the Hounds put out. But but overall, what, what are your thoughts on the, where they are right now on the, in the table and their, their play? So there are a couple of things that I think about for, for Pittsburgh this year. Number one, they're not the overall powerhouse that have kind of just shut teams down and taken games over as we've seen in previous seasons. I personally don't think that's the worst thing for two reasons. One, you don't have a target on your back as big. Now they've still got a target. Let's be clear. It's a talented team. And I don't care if you take 11 cones and stick them on the field. If Bob Lilly's on the sideline, that's a team that's going to have some sort of impact on the game. I have that much respect for him as does everybody else around the USL championship. He's that good but you don't have as big as a target on your back. That in turn, which leads you to my second point, takes a little bit of pressure off the players and the coaches. When you're the number one, number two team every single season, everybody's chasing you down. Every game's like a World Cup final for other teams. And so players have to step up to that. And so what we've seen historically is the Hounds hit the playoffs and they kind of just drag their feet and it doesn't go very well. So the kind of inside conversation between all the announcers this year is, although yes, the results overall, you know, from, from a, a viewpoint of, you know, what's the overall product haven't been as good. They're not sitting as high in the standings. They're still really good at home. They're still very good defensively. And we feel like this is one of those years where they're going to get underrated by people. People aren't going to give enough credit and they're going to, you know, they'll skate their way into the playoffs. They'll be fine. And they are a team that is built for playoff football. I mean, like, right, like they just lock it down and they find a way to nick a goal on the other side. This year, I do like the front line more because Ciceroni, yes, I get it. Dane Kelly, yes, I get it. But we never really saw on a regular basis Ciceroni, Kelly, Dequa, Forbes, like everybody kind of intertwining at once. Now, some of that was because of unavailability due to visa issues in the past with Dequa. We also had injury issues. There was COVID. I mean, this team has been through so much in the past three seasons. You guys are on the verge, the, the Pittsburgh Riverhounds are on the verge of having three double-digit goal scorers on the team. I believe it's the either the first time ever or the first time since like 1999 or something crazy like that. It's, it's, or it's since the inception of the team. Um, and so what goes on within that is the idea that we can spread the wealth and we don't have to have one guy. So that's another thing where the pressure relief comes off of them. I actually, you talked about Arturo Ordonez. I picked him as my young player of the year before the beginning of the season. You know, we have our show on, on Sirius XM called USL All Access, and we run through and we do our preseason accolades. I picked him because of what you talked about for his versatility within the ranks at Pitt, his ability to operate between a three and a four back. And we've seen that this season. That's a better, or excuse me, a rookie player who's come in, who's got all these talented individuals with so much experience in front of them. And he's just kind of coasting right along, helping dictate this entire team. I don't like the fact that they are not playing as well against teams that are beneath them in the table. Now, talent-wise, the gap has closed between everybody in the USL Championship. That's in both conferences. But the Hounds have to find a way that when they're playing these teams that just, let's be fair, they're not as good as them. It's honest. It's the honest truth. The Hounds are favored for a reason. They get better results for a reason. Bob Lilly is there for a reason. Whether it's Atlanta United 2 or Red Bull or Hartford or what we saw last night, they've got to find a way to close these games out, and they've got to find a way to do it more impressively. Like, they've got to put teams away 2 or 3 nil. So it does concern me that at the 
as we're approaching the end of the season, we're not seeing them ramp themselves up. Historically, any other team that's won the title or gone deep have found a way right now to either make unbeaten runs or only lose like one or two games down the stretch. And if they did, they looked really good doing it. When you watch the Hounds right now, they're not that impressive. They're they're kind of vanilla, right? It's it's bleak in the attacking movements. Do they provide themselves some options? Absolutely. But like the overlapping runs aren't a plenty. You know, Bob's tweaking with the lineup as he always does, but guys just seem unsure of themselves and there's not a lot of confidence in it as I watch it. I mean, I was on the game last night and I kind of just sat there and I joked with the producer. I said, 10 minutes in the game, I go, this is a nil-nil game. I promise you. This is going to be a nil-nil game. And if someone scores, they're going to score in the 89th or 90th minute and they're going to get out of here and be all so happy. But this is going to be a dredged out nil-nil game. And that's what we saw. I would love to see them make a run and start to up their energy a little bit. But that's got to be within the first 10, 15, 20 minutes. This actually reminds me a little bit of the Louisville team of last year towards the middle of the year. That team had a problem defensively by conceding late in games, but their bigger issue was they were shot out of a cannon. 5, 10, 15 minutes, a lot of chances, and all of a sudden it went quiet. That's the Hounds right now. They look real good real quick, and then it gets silent. They sort of just manage the game. They're professional about it. Don't really give up a ton of chances, but can't really score, and that's why they're sitting where they're at in the table. Yeah, you mentioned Bob tweaking the lineup a lot or tweaking things, um, you know, uh, tactically, of course. What else is new? But it, I don't know. I've heard some different people say different things, but the fact that they, maybe are they – does he overthink him things sometimes too much? Um, and, and with the lineup now in terms of form, you know, Dane Kelly just seems like he's he had that good start, you know – I don't know what it, whether it's there's some I know Bob's probably has it kind of a plan in mind, but in terms of is he is he managing minutes, the workload uh, with you know veteran player like that, or you know I don't know the Dequas just has just been more you know in terms of work rate and things like that. Um, I don't know. They're, they're just it just seems like. Dane Kelly was brought here for a reason. Maybe he was brought here and their focus is playoff uh, postseason run and, and keeping him fresh. But I just don't see real good form right now. I'm with you on some of that. I, I definitely feel, uh, as do a lot of people, that there is something in, in his overall health. He's older. you got to manage his body. He's not going to be able to play 60, 70, 80, 90 minutes every single game. You have to find a way to utilize him, whether – Beginning of the game, change at halftime, give him 56 minutes or bringing him off the bench. He's done a good job managing that for the most part. But that, again, goes back to the kind of idea of spreading the wealth. Like if you get them all together, now you have no excuses. But if it is two out of three or one out of three, you can make the same argument in the midfield for last night. If you have Danny Griffin, Robbie Mertz, and Canardo Forbes all at the field at the same point in time, I'd be hard-pressed to find any single coach in the USL championship that wouldn't take that trio. Right. And yet, if it's only one or it's two, you got to find a way to persevere through it. And they just didn't. They didn't look dominating at all. They, yeah, they, they for most of the first half, I know they lost the possession battle at the end of it, but who cares? They created better opportunities. But, like, you just let teams hang around. So, mm-hmm. as much as my argument sits well in the sense of, well, this is this team is built for the playoffs because they grind results out, yeah, but we also we haven't seen them be dominating really at all either. And you've got to have some sort of takeover type scheme to yourself because you can be that drag out team. But if you're that drag out team 
and you don't have someone who's willing to take over or you don't have that other gear, aren't you just a team that just kind of lets other teams hang around then too? So the tweaking of the formation is something that's never going to change. Bob has admitted to me multiple times that he does overthink it. Bob is like the Pep Guardiola of USL championship, right? Like he sits there, you know, just like the Man City manager and he watches, he watches more tape than anybody that I know. And I watch a lot of tape and he watches <laughs> more than I do, you know, and we, we have such elongated conversations about what team is doing this way, how they're tweaking here. You know, you're pulling this side on the midfield, but you're pushing there. Bob you're, takes you're all even of that. Using, shoves, you're, you're even using Bob's um, hand, hands. You bingo, know, bingo, right? Hands like he does. Bingo. So, you know, you, you take everything and he just kind of stores it in this little black book that resides within that beautiful brain of his. And, does he overthink it? Absolutely. You know, but do I think that he overthought it last night? No, they should have gotten a result. They just couldn't finish. But I do go back and like you talked about the stretch that they're on. If you start, they played well in New Mexico and deserve better. I'll give them that. But let's go to the Hartford game. Hartford, Tulsa, Indy, Memphis, Red Bull, Atlanta, Battery. There is only one game in there, just one, that I would consider them even possibly dropping points and even then it probably should have been a draw and that's because they were at home and it was the Memphis game that's not a knock on Memphis I'm very good friends with Ben Pierman I love all the guys and what they're doing there but every time teams come to high mark they get no better than one point and they should be head down walking out of here with their tail between their legs because they didn't get three and they walked out with zero Memphis fine you give them three don't think it should have happened but you give them three that's still six other games where you should have 100% come out on top and it's not even close. And they didn't, they didn't, you know? And, and why is that? There are a million ways that you can make that argument. Bob attributes it to inconsistency. I see that in their play. We saw it a lot last night. You can't have Arturo Ordonez making game saving, you know, headers off the line and, and good saves by Jamali weight and, and quality tackles uh, by wheat down on the corner. And then, no supplementation within the midfield or lackluster performances on the front two or front three, depending on how they line up. It's just there are di different segments within a game and there are different segments in orientation within a team. And that's where the Hounds are right now. It's 11 guys on a field, three perform masterfully. And they're usually separated across the field and they can't have a massive impact on the game because they're too isolated from each other. And then the other seven or eight, depending on where the argument comes from, just kind of coast along and they don't play poor enough to give up bad results and they don't play well enough to go steal points or, or get the results that they deserve. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think there's, there's some sense of that and you, there's a lot of good pieces there, but are they, is the chemistry there? Um, it, it's not even so much chemistry. I think it's uh, it's just a matter of what, you know, moving forward, looking into, into the, you know, future here. They allowed them first. They got to take care of business there. If they lost their last year, it was the inconsistency, right? Then yeah. I think really it's going to come down to them if they really want to secure that um, home playoff for game, which I think here in Pittsburgh, fans really would love uh, to have. They have to beat. They have to get six, six to four to six points to Louisville, Louisville, and Birmingham. There's those two, and then they got to play all Western teams at the end of the season. So um, you can talk to the folk people at the USL championship about that. It's, what's up with all the uh, Western championship, Eastern champion, uh, 
conference um, matches at the end of the season. I mean, I think the Hounds, I think the last four or five are all against Western Conference teams, which is unique. But but no, the, the, the at the loud note, I'm sure they're not going to look ahead, but those are two really important matches, Birmingham and Louisville. Absolutely, and and they're even more important now because of what we were just talking about, their inability to get points against, uh, you know, most of those teams in the previous seven games. So, you know, Char- think about this. Charleston Battery, there's two. Red Bull, there's two. Um, I would even make sense that New Mexico United, there's two. Memphis, you should probably argue one, but let's just stay with those. So there's six points right there that 100% should have been in their pocket. Six points. If we're having that conversation right now, they are one point off first place. Think about that. I mean, and there are and there are way more instances this year than those three games that I just talked about that ended up in draws, right? Remember when they got smacked around by the Rowdies at the end of June? Like, when did that happen? Remember when they went cross-country and lost 3-0 to the Charleston Battery? A Charleston Battery team that not only did they just draw last night, only has four wins on the season. And given up 57 goals. That right there is, it's an embarrassment, to be honest. It's 57 goals. I mean, they couldn't even score. Yeah. But think about this. I'm very much the type of person, although, as people know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I will tell you what I'm thinking. I am the type of person that wants to see people succeed. I want to find the positive. So it was you and I are sitting here, and we can gripe on this and gripe on that. After everything that we've talked about over the last half hour so far, they're still right there. Like that that's what I'm saying about this team is as as frustrating as it's been, this team is still right there. Like I look at how well Birmingham Legion have played to get them, and especially recently, but to get themselves to this spot where they're at, they're only two points out of the hounds. Right. And that's a Birmingham Legion team that you know, I'm calling their game this weekend, excuse me, against um against Miami FC. That's a Birmingham Legion team who over the past couple of weeks, they have beaten Memphis. They have beaten San Diego Loyal, right? They have beaten Sacramento Republic. They were toe-to-toe with Louisville, to be fair. They beat New Mexico United. They've taken down a relative who's who in the Eastern and Western Conference. That is one other thing that I will say that, like, you know, how I mentioned how the Hounds play down. They don't really play up either. You know, they don't they don't play up against a lot of their opponents. So when a better team is presented in front of them, I did the math yesterday. I believe it's right around 500, but like they haven't really beaten anybody in a long time. Right. And the team that they have beaten. The season. Yeah, exactly. And so the teams that they have beaten, they beat them so early on, John, that like a win against Memphis now looks great. A win against Memphis week one didn't look that great. Right. right. A win again. And then you got to keep going back. Like it's great that you took down Birmingham Legion. The Birmingham Legion team at the early May wasn't even going to make the playoffs. The El Paso team at the beginning of May, that team started like one win through seven, right? So those wins just didn't hold as much water. And they don't. They they still don't. Because you beat a team like, if I told you that you beat Phoenix Rising, there's a big difference between beating Phoenix Rising at the beginning of 2022 and the end of 2022. That team at the beginning of 2022 and a month span, beat the number one team in the Western Conference, San Antonio, twice. That San Antonio team had only given up 13 total goals, four of which came from the run of play. All four of those goals came from Phoenix Rising. And yet, that Phoenix team is a far cry than what we're talking about right now. So when you relate it back to the Hounds, like, that's great that you beat those teams, but what have you done for me lately is kind of the argument, right? So, like, 
the teams, the playoff teams, they lost to Louisville. They lost to, um, you know, the embarrassing loss to Tampa. the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Absolutely. That was a difficult one. Okay. I'll give them the Miami win. And that's kind of it. Everybody else yeah. that is above you has, has pretty much handled business, right? right? So now you're getting to the stretch when you were talking about earlier, all these Western conference, if I uh, write your Senator, write your governor, write the president, write Jake Edwards, write everybody Pittsburgh Riverhounds fans. Cause I don't think this is fair that you're playing all these Western conference teams at the tail. I mean, most of them are at home. They, I think they have to go to still, Sacramento still, um, but still, I mean, it's, it's just unique, but um, well, can't wait to see how it plays out. I mean, I think that the next, um, you know, month and a half, it'll be interesting to see, uh, what happens. And I, I don't know. I, I personally think that they have another, they have, they're very capable of having another gear Oh yeah. where it, it hasn't come in yet or that they're saving themselves or whatever it is. Um, I do think that second gear is there. Well, I would also say that it, it, I don't even think it's second, John. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I'm not being uh, disrespectful. I, I think there's a second and a third and a fourth. Like that's, that's the type of talent that this team possesses. Um, you know, we, we just talked about the West a second ago. It's unfortunate because this closing stretch might be, might be the most difficult closing stretch in all the USL championship. That's how hard their schedule is because you've got the number one team in Louisville. That could be the number one team overall in the entire USL championship, not just the Eastern conference. You've got the Legion fighting for a top four spot, Orange County, who, I've said for a while now that I don't think they're going to get in. There's still a tremendous amount of talent. San Antonio, number one in the West, maybe number one overall. Sack. Sack for me. I said this before the first kick of a ball heading into the Tampa Bay Rowdies, Birmingham Legion game, the first game of the year. That Sacramento Republic team is going to be good, and they were a dark horse to be scary come playoff time. Guess what? They're in the Open Cup final, and they could host a home playoff game. And then Oakland Roots, who are right there within the playoff chase as well. Uh, it, it scares me that they have to go through that gauntlet and you could be finding ways to grind out results. Yet, knowing the teams that Bob has coached in the past, especially like the Rochester teams, they always got better at the end of the year, Yeah, right? I mean, I can remember the 15 team, the, the 17 team, the 17 team at the end of the season and their, and their run in the Western, or excuse me, in the, in the Eastern Conference. That's what I'm looking for out of the Hounds come the end of the year. Like, I don't want to see them get a 1-1 draw against Louisville, I want to see them beat Louisville. I want to see them go on the road to Sacramento Republic and beat them at home. That's what fans need to be aspiring to right now because if you just continue to squeak out results, three points here, a point there, a random loss, you're going to hit the first round of the playoffs and they're going to drop out real quick. Yeah, and I think the fans here, you know, it's five years into the Lily reign, so I think we're getting into that other territory of like the first few years, you know, there's a little bit of a honeymoon if there's, there's success there's a, a winning culture that's been established, but now I think trophies, I don't think anything less than any kind of trophies with some sort of level of trophies, even the Eastern Conference Championship, I think would be really the bar that they've, they've, they've set for sure. Um, Devin, can you set us, uh, in terms before we let you go, um, just yeah. where, where can people catch you? Uh, obviously, the next few times... Uh, Next few times you're uh, covering either the Hounds or Pitt, uh, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So I'll always try and tweet out, first off, what games I'm on. I try to anyway. So you can find me on Twitter at Devin Kerr 9 
I'm on Instagram. I, I tend on Instagram, by the way, to show fans more of the behind the scenes stuff cool. at DVN. I'm still trying to figure it out. I'm still trying yeah. to figure out the Instagram piece. Yeah, um, I mean, social media is an interesting beast, isn't it? Um, yeah. But I, I tend to on Instagram, I'll give them more behind the scenes of what it what you know, what the walks within the stadium and the catacombs are like, what it's like to be in the broadcast booth, to interview the players firsthand, to, you know, have drinks and and have the conversations with coaches behind the scenes. I do a lot of that on on Instagram. Um, but let's see, what do we have upcoming games? Well, this weekend I will have Miami who is hosting Birmingham Legion. Then the nightcap will be Orange County who is hosting Memphis 901 FC. Then next week I will go on the road. I will be part of the coverage for the open cup final between Sacramento wait, Republic. Can't wait to see that. Our old friend, Danny yeah. Vitiello. That's right. Yeah. Danny Vitiello, of course. Um, under Mark Briggs now, they will be at Orlando City. Myself and Tyler Terrence are going to be doing a pregame and postgame and halftime show. Uh, we'll be doing a lot of content on social media as well for Sacramento Republic. I will then leave there and fly to Charlottesville to do Virginia and Virginia Tech. Nice. And in my brain, that's as far as I can remember. I know I got <laughs> games next weekend for the championship, but it's uh, – this is the time of the year, and it's a very good problem to have, John, but it's very much wash, rinse, repeat. Find a way to just survive in advance, if you will, as we approach the postseason time. And, uh, you know, my mind's a little bit more clear when we hit October and November for USL and, and for college because we've sort of we've sort of weaned our way through some of the quote-unquote weaker teams. And the, uh, let the Right, we we'll get play. to get down to business. Yeah, it's going right. to be crazy so in, in October and in early November because then That's right. everything stops for the World Cup. So, Devin, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate your time today, your insights, uh, your energy, your enthusiasm for the game. Um, I know we here in Pittsburgh appreciate uh, having you on broadcast, uh, whether it's for the Hounds or for Pitt. Always. You guys have a fantastic atmosphere, fan base, environment, you name it. Thank you so very much. Anytime, John, the pleasure is all mine. Be well, my friend. All right. You take care. Thanks again for joining us on Sounding Off on Soccer.